Welcome to a new space dedicated to biculturalism. A space to gather conversations, resources, and perspectives for everyone who wants to delve into the world of dual identity. I'm Natanya Hoffman, and you're listening to The Extra Half. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Episode 7. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that we are now on Patreon.com. It's a website through which you can support us directly with a monthly donation. You choose the amount, which we'll be using for promotion and to upgrade our equipment, at least for the foreseeable future. And we'll be doing short segments thanking and introducing our first 10 patrons throughout the next several episodes. So if you want to be one of them, you can head to patreon.com as soon as you finish listening. And if you want to support our work but prefer to remain anonymous, that's fine too. So here we are with our guest for episode 7. Muriel Ghazavi is a Persian-American violist who was raised in Germany and is active internationally as a soloist, chamber musician, and in both contemporary and Baroque ensembles and orchestras. Muriel has also completed degrees in the history and culture of the Middle East and religion and culture at the Freie Universität and the Humboldt Universität, both in Berlin. We met last week in Berlin and had a really great conversation about how complex identity is the importance of understanding the past to understand the present, and about how biculturality can be a springing board for bi-professionalism and a motor behind pursuing multiple interests. So here's our conversation. So when people ask you where you're from, what's the short answer? What's the long answer? And what do you usually tell people? Um, the short answer, depending on who's asking, is uh, that I'm from Freiburg, Germany. And uh, the long answer is that my mom is from the U.S. and my dad's from Iran, and uh, I was born and raised in Germany. And uh, where in the U.S. is your mom from? Michigan, Detroit. And what about your father? He's from born in Hamadan, and then um, they moved to Tehran, and he's from there. And how did your parents actually meet? They met in Germany in Freiburg. They um, both went to study there for one year. And uh, then they decided to stay. Oh, wow. When they met, yeah. And are they still living in Freiburg now? Yes, they're still living there. Yeah. Nice. And what about languages? What languages did you grow up speaking? And did your parents have some sort of strategy? Who spoke what to whom? Um, My mom, she spoke English to us. And my dad, he spoke Persian. And uh, my sister and me, we spoke English to each other in the beginning, and then we kind of switched to German. I think it came after going to school and having German friends. And um, in my teenage years, I remember responding in German, and uh, my mom was kind of okay with it, but my dad wasn't. And then at some point, I started speaking English again. Okay. Persian. Can you actually pronounce your, your full name in all three languages? Oh, in all three languages. Yeah. Actually, this is quite interesting, the question, because um, in my Iranian passport, I only am called Marjan, Marjan Razavi. And um, in my American passport, it only says uh, Muriel Garnet. So, yeah, well, my mom says Muriel. My dad says Muriel. And everybody here calls me Muriel. So that's my first name. <laughs> Yeah, my my dad's name is Shahriyar. My mom still says Shahriyar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so nice. 
um, are there different dialects that are spoken? And are you speaking a dialect or are you speaking the version of the language that is most widely spoken? Well, I mean, uh, there are many, many different dialects in Iran. Iran is a huge country. Um, I think it's actually four times bigger than Germany and 80 million people live there. So, yeah, many different dialects. And I guess I speak the... Tehran dialect, but mm. I'm actually not really sure, and I definitely have an accent. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I just find it fascinating because, for instance, in Italy, it's funny because the country was unified now, I guess, 160 years ago, which means that before that, they were just different languages um, and many different kinds of dialects. And so it's always very interesting when someone's parent is actually from one of the places with a, with a smaller dialect. Yeah. But I guess since your father also lived in Tehran yeah. later. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, um, I sometimes realize or see that he jokes around with my uncles or aunt uh, with the Ham Hamidon accent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So talking about um, kind of your navigating the cultures within yourself and coming to terms, especially in adolescence, I think we ask so much who we are as kind of a springing board to what will we do in the world to kind of figure that out for ourselves. Um, were there ever any moments in which biculturalism seemed like something difficult to manage or where you asked yourself why you were different from people around you or things that really made you proud or feel that you had something that was very special? Yeah, this is very uh, complex actually because um, I, I have the feeling I don't have only two cultures, but three cultures that I have to somehow make sense of in myself. And um, that was really difficult growing up and actually is still difficult now, too, because sometimes I have the feeling I don't fit in, uh, depending where I am. I mean, I'm not an American, not, not a fully Persian, not a German, yeah. um, but still somehow I am. And so yeah. that's really difficult. And um, I am happy that, I, that I'm all of that. Um, but sometimes, of course, you feel like, oh, you will never be part of a society. Yeah. Fully. Yeah. But um, I prefer to see the advantages, and uh, they are very big. I mean, being able to understand and speak all these three languages um, really opens a door to a whole world of uh, poetry and mm. humor. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. Beauty yeah. of the languages. So yeah. I'm thankful for that. And also for you, I mean, I'm so fascinated by this like very particular cross-section. You know, there's kind of the abstract also feeling like we can belong to a community of people who are bicultural and multicultural. But then there's like the concrete, which cultures do I actually have within me? One thing that I, I was wondering about, um, was there ever a moment in your life in which you were actually advised to conceal one or both or all three of your cultures? Well, I mean, when I'm in Iran, I usually don't say that I'm also American, even though I don't think that would be a big problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, But I just feel more comfortable not saying it. And um, in some parts in Germany, I prefer not to speak Persian mm -hmm. on the phone to my dad or in public openly. Um, it's just something I, I feel. It could be wrong. It's just very subjective what I'm saying. But yeah. Sure. So sometimes I hide one of these three. Sure. Yeah. And it's even not hiding. It's just um, yeah, putting another side it. in the foreground. Yeah, actually. Exactly. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk about actually your career. Let's talk about right away the kind of after we ask, who am I? The answer to what will I do? You are a violist. You're a wonderful violist. I had a chance to hear you in Cremona <laughs> a long time ago. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I admire very much what you do. And I admire the many facets of, of your bringing identity into performance and into music making and creativity. So um, we are going to hear a little excerpt that you prepared for us. Can you tell us actually a little bit about the composer and about the piece and about why, what makes it important to you? Yeah, definitely. This is a very, very beautiful piece, powerful piece by Aido Shirazi. She's an Iranian composer living in the U.S. And she's a, one of the three founders of uh, the Iranian Female Composers Association based in the U.S. And... Uh, Playing pieces by Iranian composers is something that I am doing more and more. And I'm actually working on a big musical concept um, connected to a dissertation project. Um, but this is still all in the beginnings. And um, I hope to play more of female composers from Iran mm. in the future. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a lot of music that hasn't even been written yet. So Yeah, and actually the um, modern music scene is very big. Yeah, this this piece by Aida Shirazi is called Latent, and it has parts of Iranian music embedded into it. Mm -hmm. It's a contemporary piece originally written for cello solo, but she reworked it mm -hmm. for viola solo.
So how did you start playing the viola and when did it become clear to you that it would be your profession? Uh, I started playing the violin when I was six years old and uh, thankfully my music teacher at that time uh, gave me the viola also when I was around I think 10 years old and uh, um, I stuck to that instrument. I preferred it and also I felt more comfortable um, with the depth mm -hmm. of uh, the instrument rather than the virtuosity of mm -hmm. a violin. Mm, that's interesting. Maybe I also wasn't so talented. <laughs> I'm sure it's not that. Um, I come from a, a family of violists and I can um, vouch for the creativity, inventiveness and depth yeah. of, of the instrument and instrumentalists. Yes. Um, and one thing that's interesting for me is I think a lot of us end up gravitating toward the world of classical music because it's such an international one. And that's been something that's become more and more apparent to me throughout actually this podcast process. Um, but I was wondering when you were first growing up, did you perceive it to be that way? Or was that something that actually only occurred to you later when you went to study? Actually, only later. Hmm. Um, my father is a big fan of classical music and he always listened to classical music at home. And um, other than that, my parents aren't musicians. So I didn't really know a big circle of musicians around me when I was young. And uh, then I kind of grew into the world of music making. I um, went to Jungmusiziert and to uh, Bundesjugendorchester, where mm -hmm. I met my future husband. And then kind of through friends started to get into that scene, started studying. But I never knew in my early 20s that I want to be a classical musician professionally, even though I started to study it. Mm -hmm. I was very interested and I love music, but I just wanted to see where it brings me to. I wasn't set on the idea that I want to be a professional classical musician. That's interesting. And that's also kind of in some ways a tribute to the music education system in Germany, which I think compared to a lot of other systems that that could give you kind of really the the capabilities. Yes. I'm sure you worked very hard in, in everything you did, um, but that's really wonderful to have that luxury in your 20s of, is this something I want to do or is there something else I want to do? And yes. to be able to do all of them, that's... Yeah. I think one thing that I learned from being from multiple backgrounds is that we have multiple personalities in us and we should also have multiple interests and have the time to follow all these interests and not only focus on one. Something I heard very often during my double majoring is that, no, you have to focus on one thing and you'll get distracted. You're putting too much stress on yourself. But actually, it was re very refreshing to be doing two things at the same time. And it brought up two different sides of my character and my interests. And I'm very thankful that I doubled in two majors. Well, it's interesting because... If I remember correctly, we met in 2015 or maybe 16. Yeah, I couldn't remember that time. And at that time, it might have also been a slightly different part in your trajectory. But I, I was struck by the fact that you you said at one point, you know, yeah, I'm studying other stuff um, and I and I love it. But within the classical music world, I don't usually talk about it because I yeah. think that sometimes people can actually perceive that as not being completely dedicated. Yes, absolutely. And I, I hope that that will change or Maybe it already changed. I'm not a student anymore. I don't know how the scene is in uh, around the young musicians nowadays. But I, I think during these corona times, especially now, people are realizing that, unfortunately, the cultural scene is not a very secure scene. It depends on what you want. If you want security or maybe artistic freedom, in my opinion, 
you can be an artist but also have some safety with you if you have a backup plan studying something else. On the other hand, of course, you still have to love your backup plan. You can't just go to university to have something safe in your pocket. I really loved studying other things and I I think it's a I also helped my music making. Mm, yeah. And actually that was the next thing that I was going to ask. Um, what is your personal relationship with the subject matter and did that relationship evolve and how have your studies shaped your view of the world in addition to your playing and um, music making? When I um started studying Iranian studies, my Persian was good. I was able, of course, to communicate and to everything. It was fine, but I had um, troubles reading and writing, even though I learned it when I was very young and then forgot it and then learned it again when I went to Iranian school, actually international school in Iran when I was 13, 14. Um, but then I forgot it again. So anyway, when I started studying Iranian studies in my early 20s, um, I learned how to read and write. And um, during the bachelor, we read a lot of poetry and literature from Iranian uh, writers. And I think the beauty of language somehow um, sparked the idea in me that I want to connect classical music with Iranian poetry. And that's actually when I started writing to Aida Shirazi, so it goes back many years, <laughs> with pauses in between, um, if she would like to write a piece based on um, a poem by Simin Behbahani, who died a couple of years ago, but she's also ca called the Lioness of Iran because she wrote very powerful female poetry. Mm -hmm. And... Um, that's basically when I, through my other studies, started to connect both fields. And now I'm happy to have finally, years later, made a dissertation project out of it in my mind. I was wondering, um, you said so there were kind of three stages of your learning to read and write and then forgetting and then remembering, which yeah. I'm sure built upon one another in some ways. But how long were you at school in Iran? How long were you living there? Yeah, uh, only a half a year maybe a little bit more, but not very long. Mm -hmm. And um, I felt very homesick. I was 13, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but now, looking back, I'm so thankful that I was there and I lived with my aunt and uncle and my mm -hmm. cousin. I'm so very thankful for them also mm -hmm. that they took me in. Also my other aunt and uncle, yeah. So everybody helped me a lot when I was there and I'm super happy. Wow. And what were some of the first things that happened when you then came back to Germany? Were, were there any things that you perceived in different ways? I remember flying over Frankfurt before we landed and I started to cry. I was alone in the plane. <laughs> I mean, not with a family member. And I, I started to cry because I saw the red rooftops. And mm -hmm. I thought, my God, this is so German. And I was really happy to be back home. Mm -hmm. Then I understood, yeah, actually, Germany is also a home. I mean, Iran is not a home because I never lived there other than those months, but it's a home somewhere in my soul, you know, like, I just also because I have a lot of family there, but mm -hmm. the culture is very close to what I understand and what I know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing that I've started realizing throughout the course of these conversations 
is just how important the place that you grow up in is, especially if you're, and I didn't even know the term for this before, it's third culture kids, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's also been a little bit interesting to find out the kind of literature that's been written. Um, But absolutely, I mean, we have this culture. I say we because I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, but now I don't have anyone that I could actually go home to. There's no one living there now. But I still feel very much like an Ohioan inside of me. And that's so true. Um, And it took me a long time to be able to accept that truth and not to think, well, actually, you know, I should Mm -hmm. feel more comfortable with with other places and countries where Mm -hmm. my family actually is. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have any plans or ideas or thoughts? I know that you're um, right now thinking about the dissertation project but if you project to five or 10 years from now, are there any other things that you would like to see happen in projects that unite the two professions that you've taken into one person? Well, I mean, I think I have to say that the dissertation project, this would take five years, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So by then I will be, I won't say. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, then actually I must say I really hope that my life stays um like double fieldish yeah 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 i Absolutely. don't want to be someone that just has one job yeah. for 45 years yeah yeah and that's something that i i see even reflected within your just musical identity i mean you're doing so many different kinds of things i wonder actually we're here in berlin right now speaking because after, of course, a corona test, um, <laughs> you're here for a project. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and about your experiences within the orchestra? Yeah, I am joining the Divan, uh, West Eastern Divan Orchestra um, under uh, Maestro Barenboim for this week. And I have been a member for the last five years, mm-hmm. coming relatively regularly. And I'm really looking forward to this project because this is the first time I will be playing in an orchestra after five months. Yeah. <laughs> and I really hope that I am still up for the job. <laughs> no, let's see. Yeah. And for, for those who maybe don't know about the orchestra, can you tell a little bit about yes, it? Yes, of course. I'm sorry. The West Eastern Divan Orchestra was founded in 1999. And it's um, for people with Middle Eastern backgrounds, um, like Palestinians, Israelis, Iranians, Armenians, Turkish people, Arabic people from different Arabic countries, uh, all coming together and making music. And it's not necessarily self-evident that we people with these backgrounds come together and play music mm-hmm. or just work on a project together. Mm-hmm. We have some musicians coming from those countries, unfortunately not now this week because of Corona, but usually. And... Um, yeah, it's it's a unique project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then obviously one thing that we take for granted as musicians but shouldn't be taken for granted in the world is that music really is a, a universal language. So if you bring people together from different backgrounds, there doesn't, still, yeah. Yeah, there doesn't even necessarily need to be so much dialogue because the communication is there. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So just to get started on current events and politics, Do you think there are any areas where the German media, because that's where you grew up, and in general, the Western media, has failed Iran, Persia, and the Middle East? Yes. 
I have the feeling that the Western media in general is depicting the regime and the government and the politics of Iran, but not the people. Of course, this is maybe not something that the news has to depict, um, but I think it's being completely left out. And um, the people are quite different from what the politics uh, and the regime proclaim and seem to be. And uh, on the American side, I have the feeling that lately or in the last years, um, anti-Americanism has been quite um, a growing thing. And you see it on talk shows in Germany. Actually, there have been some articles on it, too. And it's kind of almost socially accepted to be looking down to Americans and their decisions and way of lifestyle and thinking that's something I also noticed, and I don't think it's completely right. Because, yeah, we have a um, difficult, horrible governmental situation in the U.S., um, but not every American is mm. dumb. <laughs> this is something that has really grown, mm. the assumption. That's true, absolutely. And people feel just completely entitled to, to making lots of, of jokes and, and making lots of yeah. cultural references and these cultures, I mean, I, of course, I can speak for the American side, but at the very beginning of the interview, you were talking about all the different kinds of dialects and all the different kinds of cultures and just the sheer density and and size of Iran, mm -hmm. which is something that, truth be told, I hadn't even been thinking about so much. Yeah. So, you know, if media is going to start talking about the regime, then obviously we're, we're leaving a lot, a lot out. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think, which is quite interesting to know i mean i'm sure many people know is that um two and a half thousand years of monarchy ended in iran in 1979 with the islamic revolution and since 40 years we have um this relatively new situation for the country and everything is in um change and actually people are hoping for more change even but yeah so this is it's compared to history it's very new but it's huge because I think that when I grew up, and, and this was something I really had to, and I know this is a buzzword, but unlearn, because I grew up thinking like, okay, countries have borders and they have political systems and that's how things are. Mm -hmm. And until I learned that like borders are extremely problematic, mm -hmm. a lot of countries had no um, power over which borders were assigned to them and that yeah. political structures have changed enormously in the last hundred years. Yeah. Once you see all of that, it's like it's impossible to see the world in the same way again. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, yeah. And well, what about the twenty sixteen elections? Were you actually able to vote? Yes, I have an American passport and was able to vote. My sister and my mother we all voted, and I remember being in Cuba during the night of the election, and um, my husband and me we were watching. Cuban TV, which was flickering and in really bad quality, unfortunately. And we both don't speak Spanish and we were trying to make sense of what we were seeing. <laughs> and um, that night, I think I will never forget. Yeah. I mean, it was when I knew that he had been elected, I wanted to cry and laugh at the same time. And then I got really afraid that tensions could rise between, between Iran and the U.S., which obviously happened over the last years. Yeah. But when I grew up, I guess I grew up in the United States under George Bush. And I remember thinking, okay, like, first of all, and this is not what I believed, but this is what you saw when you turned on the TV. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, like, 
orange alert and red alert and um, radical Islam and mm -hmm. terrorism threats and mm -hmm. Afghanistan and then Iraq mm -hmm. and then Iran is like mm -hmm. going to come for us. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> How has your um, relationship with Iran and its history changed throughout the course of your studies? Because when we talk about Iran, we're usually talking about post-1979. Mm -hmm. But when you think about Iran and when you've spent hours and hours studying and, and thinking about things and wrapping your mind around things, you've been thinking about the part before. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And I must say, Iran is one of the countries with the oldest histories. And um, it dates back thousands and thousands of years. And uh, my master thesis, actually, uh, at the Humboldt University, was about Z the Zoroastrian religion. And um, it's super fascinating how all these following religions build up on Zoroastrian uh, religion and how all these religions are intertwined. And I also had a class on Mesopotamian um, culture and religion. and um everything builds up on each other and they're all so similar at the core so that's what i can say um and was it um i i'm sure that each country was different but did it seem at that time like in the years building up to the revolution that that was the probable and only outcome or did it was it not at all um clear Yes, I mean, I wasn't born at that time, but what I can read and hear from friends and family is that you had uh, the Shah, who was the emperor, and he basically wasn't good to his own population. He had his own secret police called the Savak, and he imprisoned every opponent and um, tortured the public or the prisoners. And he lived in the riches while the people lived in poverty. And the oil actually was going to Britain. And they, then came Mossadegh, who was democratically elected in the 50s. He wanted to nationalize the oil and give the money back to the Iranians. And uh, actually then the MI6 and the CIA pushed Mossadegh in favor to, of strengthening the Shah regime. People were angry, obviously, and this anger built up to the Islamic Revolution. They had um, they had recordings coming in coming in from Khomeini, who was at that time living in exile, and I guess what he was saying sounded promising. So many people, also many students, what I heard, and young people, voted for, or actually wanted the revolution. They didn't vote, but yeah, they wanted the revolution because they thought it would be better mm -hmm. than the. Shah regime, which was repressive and a dictatorship. Yeah. And how quickly did things change? What I heard is that it changed basically in a matter of days. So in a matter of days, you then had to step out of your home with a hijab, mm -hmm. with a um, with a head covering. Yeah. 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 I guess also the Iran-Iraq war from 1980 to 88 um, fueled the anti-Americanism because Iraq was able to endure the war or prolong the war through American help. Yes. And so the resentment grew. Um, there were so millions of dead people on both sides. And so that all strengthened also the regime, I guess, somehow. Mm -hmm. Through their anti-American politics and 
this led up to what it is today, but there are so many young people in Iran that want change. And in terms of women in Iran now, I think that obviously anyone born after 1985 or something would have then been fully um, a generation born after the regime was was mm -hmm. solidly built. Um, so that's getting into our age kind of territory. And then, of course, after that, um, were you able to talk to some of your counterparts, like cousins or friends, or make um, acquaintances and learn about what the view is at home and how that matches or doesn't match what is required on the streets? Well, what I hear from my cousins is that the life at home was different to the life outside. This is what we often hear in how it is in regimes, right? I mean, mm, sure, the DDR yeah. or in other countries, yeah, who you are outside is not who you nece necessarily are at home. Mm -hmm. So you have a double life. Mm -hmm. I was just also wondering to what extent, though, um, this conservatism bled into families and bled into the new generation being raised perhaps in a more conservative way. Do you think that is also something that kind of is driving a wedge into the country and making people behave in very different ways? And Yes, yeah, I, I think definitely. And I think that the society is very split. I think also that they're quite confused mm. and uh, have lost trust. Is there any other cultural and historical context that, that you think that someone in the West should know that we might just simply be missing because we're not informed? Since we're both musicians, I think it's quite fascinating that the Berlin Philharmonica also played in Tehran mm. and Karian conducted them and many other international musicians and artists went to Iran regularly before the Islamic Revolution. Mm. And that, that, I think, is quite an interesting fact that many people maybe don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How open it was, culturally also, and um, concerning the U.S., no. Mm -hmm. And I was very struck um, by a profile picture, actually, that you posted on Facebook in 2017 in response to Trump's travel ban. And... It really struck me how you were able to use image to channel culture in such a direct, striking way. Is that something you think about often in the way that you dress, in the way that you present yourself? And do you have different registers depending on where you are? Yes, actually, you know, um, the photo you're talking about is my passport photo. And um, I am wearing the rusari, the headscarf, which is mandatory. I do not wear that in my everyday life. Mm -hmm. And so, actually, I am not happy wearing that for the photo either. Mm. But when my country or my people, my culture get attacked by the outside, like with the travel ban from a foreign country, then suddenly I do feel more. And it's, it's really complicated and it really changes constantly, like what side I feel more on, you know, it's... Um, but what I don't want is to, like any outside country attacking one of my countries. So I, but when they attack each other, then I kind of jump from seat to seat. It's really a constant struggle within myself. Like, who am I defending now? But what I know is that I'm always defending, somehow <laughs> trying to defend my countries from the outside. So, yeah. and yeah, I just, in that moment, I felt very strongly that it's 
it's a wrong thing and it 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 it, it separates families it's not right it's um not fair it's Yeah, well, and especially because a travel ban is not a ban on governments, it's a ban on individual people. Yes, it, it hits the, the mothers, the fathers, the sisters and brothers, the partners that want to visit each other. Mm -hmm. And also, um, so you said it's a passport photo. Does that mean that you have Iranian and American citizenship? Yes. And German? No, not ah, the German. <laughs> interesting. Yes. Yeah. I actually had an appointment a couple of months ago. Um, because I was thinking about getting a German passport because I'm sick of standing in the international line <laughs> when I travel in Europe. Of course, it's not EU. I didn't even... Yeah. yeah. Neither country is EU. <laughs> yeah, so I always stand in that line forever and my husband goes through in two seconds. Yeah. yeah. And um, then I had an appointment and they said, yeah, I would have to give back one of the passports. Right. But as far as I know, you're, you can't give back the Iranian passport. So it would be the American And then I was thinking, well, if I ever have kids in the near future, it's quite practical for them to have dual citizenship. Yes. So I'm keeping the American passport for that occasion. Okay. And so then, of course, if it's your if it's your passport photo in Iran, you have to be covered. Yeah. But I was struck not only by that, but also by your facial expression. Um, it. Well, and I think that it's because as an American, like, I'm very used to people smiling on their passport. <laughs> this, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's because of that. <laughs> no, but it, and then German, like, Europe is more neutral, but then there you look like, yeah, quite, like, very um, earnest, let's say. <laughs> yeah, it's because it's a passport photo. <laughs> We're not allowed to smile. <laughs> yeah. Earlier you were talking about your work with Iranian composers um and Iranian female composers specifically um can you talk a little bit about how things have actually evolved or not evolved since 1979 and you were talking a little bit about potential hope for change do you see any concrete um kind of avenues to that and what that might look like for tomorrow well I mean these composers female composers that I have been working with are Aida Shirazi as I already mentioned Um, but um, one of them is also Nilufar Nurbakhsh. And she wrote a very powerful piece called Veiled, mm. with um, actually also originally written for cello. <laughs> but I'm playing it on the viola. <laughs> and it's um, for viola and electronics. And mm. it's about the movement that Iranian women started, um, putting their headscarf on a stick and standing at the side of a road with it, like demonstrating against the mandatory headscarf and I mean uh, anybody can wear it that wants to wear it I'm not against it I'm just against the obligation of wearing a headscarf and um, I think these female composers stand for um, a generation that is striving for change and they use art as a form of transporting that hope and while well, speaking of art but also in general of, of work that has been done um, we've touched on so many different topics and I know that you've read and heard and listened to much more are there any books or podcasts or films or anything that um, you could recommend to us if we want to just dig a little bit deeper and learn a little bit more I can always recommend the book called The Silk Roads from Peter Frankel Pan I don't really know how to say his last name in German it's Licht aus dem Osten okay <laughs> 
bei ähm, Peter Franco fahren. <lacht> yeah, that was great because it gives you a general view of the Silk Roads of, mm. in the, over the span of the last thousands of years. And uh, I love that book. Mm -hmm. I also really thought that A Short History of Mankind by Yuval Harari is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, concerning English literature, I only so far know the children's books <laughs> my mom read to me. <laughs> <laughs> And, of course, the ones that are known anyway, and the Persian literature. Well, is there anything else that you would like to talk about, even going all the way back to growing up bicultural, or about any of the other things we've touched on? Well, my parents, yeah, they came to study here. And uh, they originally just wanted to stay for one year. Mm -hmm. Then they met, and they decided to stay. But it's quite obvious that both of them still miss their homes. and. Um, Sometimes I have the feeling that my parents cling to the image they have of the country that they left 40 years ago. Mm. And um, so often my mom says, oh, we have broader streets in America. Or in America, I just go shopping and I find something immediately. It's just not the case here in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, she just, and then I say, oh, come on, mom, you don't know that. I mean... It's been 40 years that she hasn't lived there. She lived with my sister there for one year in Texas, mm -hmm. my cousin. But yeah, um, I think they cling to an idea of the country. Yeah. And were there ever any moments in which um, you were in Iran and you felt unsafe, that the, the situation politically was unstable to the point where you really felt unsafe? No, never. Yeah. That's something, I think, that from media portrayals, I wouldn't have expected you to say that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I and mean, actually, then it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, this is just something I told my friends when I got back. Last October, I was in Iran with my sister. Mm -hmm. And we went to coffee shops. And then I saw that they offer this bulletproof coffee, you know, that was all over the West. But mm. I mean, my friends were so surprised to hear that They also offer it in Tehran. It's yeah. this black coffee with a piece of butter in it. You know, this new trend. Okay. Awful. <laughs> I would never order it. But yeah. They had it. Yeah. 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 Just, I mean, they're up to date. And I think that's something that people are surprised about. Yeah. Yeah. Which I find very interesting. Yeah. Second to last question. Um, now you are married to a German man and... Um, besides the fact that he gets to go through security and you have to wait, are there any other differences that really manifest themselves in your relationship on a cultural level? Um, yes. Being with him, I realized that I am not that German after all. <laughs> so in comparison to him, I'm not. So actually being with him brings out the lesser German part of myself. Mm-hmm. Whereas being in the U.S. or in Iran brings out the German part more in me, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but with, with um, my husband, I, I realized that he's much more German. And the other day, um, my friend gave me an egg that you can put in boiling water with mm -hmm. eggs, and then it sings when, it's, when the eggs are ready. Okay. <laughs> really sweet present. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first song that comes is, Meine Oma fährt im Hühnerstall Motorrad. And my German friends were like, oh yeah, meine Oma fährt im Hühnerstall. I didn't know that song. I've never heard of it. And that's again when I realized 
yeah, it's just, I don't know these German songs, even though I grew up here and went to kindergarten, but it's just not who I am and not, not yeah, it's so difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So complex. And the German culture is very much your own, you and your sister. That's that's your thing, actually. Your yeah. parents each have their own flavor and you have this third flavor that's... Yeah, it's, it's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, then... Um, with that lovely mess, um, do you have any advice for friends and listeners who are in a multicultural relationship and are about to start a family and mess of their own? Yes. <laughs> I can only say how thankful I am to my parents that they were so strict in speaking their languages to us and showing us their culture. And uh, I would always recommend that to my friends that are from two backgrounds, like a couple of friends of mine are Norwegian German mm. and she speaks Norwegian to their little girl and uh, he speaks German of course and I think that's really great and I can only hope that I also have the strength to do mm. that because I think at some point it gets kind of difficult when your partner doesn't really understand everything you're speaking yes. to with a kid and um, yeah. yeah but I, I think that's great and I that's something I could advise to anyone because it worked so well with my parents mm. and us kids and I hope that I will do it as well. Well, Muriel, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> the Extra Half is created and produced by a small but dedicated team. Thanks to Zylvinas Brazauskas, who's doing the editing and who created, performed, and recorded the original music you're hearing right now. And thanks to Jessamyn Jones, the graphic designer behind our logo and all the graphics associated with the podcast. If you'd like to get involved, you can log on to anchor.fm slash the extra half. And feel free to send us a voice message with questions, comments, or suggestions on what we can do in the future. If you know someone who you think would be a good fit, just let us know. Also, please rate and review this podcast on whichever platform you're using, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, or support us directly at patreon.com. Next time, we'll be speaking with Natalia Kitamikado. Natalia is a designer who is both Japanese and Polish, and has lived in both countries. She's active as a set and costume designer around the world and has worked closely with director Christian Lada. I met Natalia during one of their collaborations as we are both a part of the 2018 premiere of Unknown I Live With You, with music by Katerina Głowica. More about that collaboration, Natalia's experience navigating the world as a bicultural, and the outlets which she found for self-expression and self-understanding in a week. I'm Natanya Hoffman. You've been listening to The Extra Half. Take care. Until next time.